0: and turn back to that Matthew 5, message, verses 43 through 48. I'd like to talk to you just a little bit today about enemy love. I have a story about that. I was born in Camden, New Jersey. Um, most of you know that, I hope. Cooper Hospital. Um, but I grew up in Finley, Ohio. Have you ever heard the old song? I know this is dating, Down by the Old Mill Stream. Anyone hear that? Okay, am I the only one, really? Seriously, I thought that was more popular. Forget that. I was born in Finley, Ohio, and about seven or 800 people Sunday mornings. It was a great place to grow up. I had many fond memories of being there, except one. And that was, I remember, in sixth grade, I was driving by the church uh, with my parents on one morning. And it was the morning after a devastation had taken place at our church. That our church auditorium, it would be this, like this entire building, white building, was burned down. And I drove by. It was all in ruins. The walls had fallen down, and it was all black and soot everywhere, and still smoke was coming up. And the the night before, our church had been burned down by a Satanist, and they had targeted our ministry. And I can still picture in my mind standing out in front of the church. It was almost too hard to believe, and so many of our members were standing out there. It was in the rain that day. And the looks on their faces, I knew they were upset, and angry about it and almost to the point where they just couldn't believe that it had actually happened to us. For two years we had to have church down the road in a public high school and eventually uh, we rebuilt a new auditorium far bigger at the bo- other end of our property. In the old building we rebuilt it and it became a gymnasium and a cafeteria and a kitchen that used for church and school both. But it really wasn't until About five years after that event took place, where I was over at our senior pastor's house one night, and he told me the story that a few days after he found out that a Satanist had arsoned our church, that he found out where they had taken him and where he was being held in prison, and he actually got permission to go and visit him, and he told me in detail the story about how he went into the cell with the Satanist and sat down and for two hours, told him how much Jesus loved him and how much he loved him, and then he gave him the gospel. And I remember sitting there as an 18-year-old boy heading off to Bible college to head into the pastoral ministry, and I thought, that's the love of Jesus. And that story never has left my mind and has impacted me, And I've often asked the question, and I want to share it with you today just briefly. How is Pastor Snavely able to love a Satan worshiper that had burned down everything that he had done for God, so to speak? Well, the answer is in our text Pastor Snavely had a greater righteousness. It wasn't just an external righteousness as long as things were going well. No, it was a righteousness that exceeded the scribes and Pharisees. Let me tell you more specifically what that righteousness means when it comes to the expression of it in love. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 48, and this is a summary of not only the last illustration of an internal, external love and and righteousness, it's the summary of all of them. All six of them. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Jesus is not saying that if you have an internal and an external righteousness that you will be sinless because the word perfect doesn't denote that. The word means to be complete. It means to be whole. It means that you're not just half of something. You have all of the parts. It's integrated. It goes together let me give you a picture of it. The only other time the word "perfect" is used in, the math, in Matthew's gospel is when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and in verse 20, uh, 19 through 21, and he, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he asks him the question that all of us should ask, "How do I inherit eternal life?" And Jesus says, "Well, you have to keep the commandments." And the rich young ruler says, which ones? And Jesus says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love. And then Jesus lists a few other, and he ends in Matthew's version of it and says this, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this man is an observant Jew, and he's orthodox, and in his own mind, he repeats and says this. He says, all of these I have kept from my youth, and externally, he probably had. Externally, he had kept the commandments. But Jesus said, and was going to tell him, you're missing something. In fact, the guy understands what Jesus is saying and asks him. He says, Lord, what am I still lacking? And the word lacking in the original language is the same word used in Romans 3.23, which says, all have sinned and fall short. He said, Jesus, how am I still falling short? I mean, on the outside, he goes, I've kept all of these things. I love God. I love others. And Jesus wants to point out to him what he's lacking. And so this is what he says. He says, if you want to be perfect, not sinless, if you want to be complete... If you really want to have the righteousness that God is looking for, not just the outside stuff, but also the inside stuff so it's complete, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and sell all that you have, and I want you to give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and you come and follow me. And the Bible says this, and the man went away sorrowfully. Here's why. He had great possessions. What does that mean? Here's what it means. That on the outside, he had done all the things that people and God would expect him. But on the inside, you know what his real love was? Money. Things. See, he wasn't complete. He wasn't whole. On the outside, he looked religious. He looked righteous. But on the inside, he had a different love than God and people. You know, it was material things. It was possessions. And see, that's perhaps what you and I are missing. See, how do you love an insanely rude, harsh, demanding boss? How do you love your cold-hearted, distant father who didn't care enough even to say, I love you more than a couple times your entire life? How do you love your disobedient, disrespectful, and rebellious teenager? How do you love your what you thought was a faithful friend who ends up being a backstabbing one? How do you love your almost impossible-to-live-with spouse? See, these things would be, and, and to love them after what they've said to you, and love them after what they've done to you, and these things to us, the commandment to love such people seems absurd. And they will be, and it will be absurd to you, unless you are perfect. Unless you have a perfect love, a complete love that stems from both an internal and external righteousness that's been given to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Only then can you have enemy love. So let me unpack for you just briefly what Jesus says about this perfect love that he wants us to have. He says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders of Jesus' day have what I call a limited love. It was parochial, meaning it was narrowly defined and restricted to people who were just like them. I came up with a poem that kind of epitomizes their limited love. It goes like this. Believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look. Do always as I do, for then and then only will I fellowship with you. And that's how the Pharisees thought. They thought that, hey, you look like me, dress like me, act like me, believe like me. If you don't, then I don't have any time for you. And they might have even read Psalm 139, which says, God, don't I hate those who hate you? And so maybe they thought, hey, God wants us to love people like us, but the people who don't like him, we're going to hate them. And they may have thought that they were even being biblical about it. But in the first century, Jewish people who thought they could love God could hate Jewish people who were unorthodox, not observant people, tax collectors prostitutes, people who were on the outer edges and the margins of society. They felt that they could love people like themselves, but hate all the other ones. Jews thought that they could hate people who were Romans and Gentiles and weren't even interested in God. They thought they had the right to hate them. You see, things haven't changed much. Fast forward to 21st century. It's like Republicans thinking that they could have the right to hate Democrats and vice versa. It's like Christians thinking they have the right to hate people like liberals or Catholics or other religions who don't agree with them on theology. It's like people who are white thinking they have the right to hate people who are black and black people having the right to hate those people as well. It's like heterosexual people thinking that because they differ from people greatly and rightfully with those who are homosexual that we have the right to hate them. And all of us claiming to know Jesus at times time practice a limited love because we have redefined and narrowed down our definition of what neighbor is. And we like to think that we do it on the outside, but on the inside things are different. The question Jesus then would pose to all of us today is, do you have a perfect love? Is your love complete? Not just conformity and looks good on the outside, but does it come from Calvary love? Does it come from Jesus' love? You see, Jesus loved Gentiles. He healed a centurion's servant. He uh, gave the gospel to the woman at the well. He loved non-observant people. He ate with Zacchaeus, and he healed uh, and he also had Matthew as a disciple. Jesus loved Romans. He healed Malchus's ear in the garden when Peter had cut it off. See, all of the things that the Jewish people, the religious Jewish people of Jesus' day were not, Jesus was. Because Jesus didn't just tell us, don't have a limited love and have a limitless love. He lived it. He lived it. So he's able to say, if you would, in verse 44, but I say to you in contrast, Don't hate your enemies. Love them. Which enemies, Pastor Walker? He doesn't leave us hanging. He says very particularly and specifically, those who persecute you. These are active, aggressive enemies. These are people that Jesus spells out earlier in Matthew 5 when he says those who persecute you, bless them. He says those who revile you, so there's verbal assaults. He says people who say things and cruel things about you because you follow Jesus. Like today, you're a homophobic, you're intolerant, you're a bigot, you're a racist. And those names get called regularly to Christians because of their stand on biblical morality. How do we respond to them? Jesus says, love. We don't revile back, but we pray Listen to this. We pray for those who persecute us. We pray for them. We pray that things God would do good things in their life, that God would bring them to salvation. See the difference? He also says there's another kind of people that we also care about and love as our enemies. He says... In the category of evil and unjust. See, here's what God's love for enemies is like. And it says it for you there in the text. He says, God makes his son to rise. Listen to the two categories. On the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Here's the great thing about God. He doesn't deny for all of us today that we have two categories. There are just and unjust people. There are evil and good people. God is not trying to say, hey, everybody's great. Because everyone is not great. They're not. In fact, some people are bad and really bad, and he uses the word evil, wicked. There are wicked people in our world. God knows there are two categories. The problem is the Pharisees knew it and and thought they could only love one of them, that they would love the good category and the just category, but the evil and unjust category, they thought they could hate them, and God says, you're wrong about that. There are two categories, but you must love both categories of people. And intentionally, by the way, because it says the verbs are, he makes the sun rise. He sends the rain, and he's doing it personally. So when you see the sun rise and the rain come down, it doesn't just rain on Christians, does it? I've never noticed that. The sun doesn't come up. Hey, go to the beach. Oh, don't go to the beach. You're wicked. There's not going to be no sun there. That's not how it works, is it? You know why? Because that's the love of God. God says, I know where they are and I know who they are and I know what they've said and I've known what they've done and I still love them, he says. So we're having a Tam- Hamilton Township meeting and open space has been our opponent, serious, aggressive opponent. And our response to them is love. To the township, if they turn us down, our response to them is Love. Love to them. Maybe we should send them flowers. Maybe we should give them candy. Cake would be good. Why? Because it's what God is like. It's what God is like. How crucial is this to the Lord? Listen to this. He says in verse 45 that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You know, by loving your enemies, it doesn't make you a son of God. It proves that you are. You know why? Because like father, like son. Like father, like sons, plural. So if God the Father loves people who are opposed to him and are not like him and are antithetical to everything he's about and he loves them, and you say that you are his child... That you are his son or daughter. Guess what that means? That if that is true, then you must love like he loves. He wants you to know that. Now, there's a very strong statement, two of them, in fact, as we close, Jesus makes in verses 46 and 47. And they're both if phrases. And he's putting out scenarios because he wants you to go from this big ethereal statement to he wants to come down to where you and I live. How do we, you and I, demonstrate that we are his child an everyday type living? How would I show enemy love? Well, Jesus says, now listen, I gotta tell you up front, when he says, "Don't the tax collectors do this, and don't the Gentiles do this?" can I tell you scribes and Pharisees were so holy externally, that they prided themselves that this was true, that there was nothing they were not like tax collectors or pagans at all. There was nothing that Pharisees had in common with someone who was the lowest status on the spiritual and social standing. They had nothing in common with them. So when Jesus says to them, listen, if you love those who love you, thats our ta- if you love those who already love you, what reward have you? And then he tacks on this statement. Don't the tax collectors do that? Wow. So the people who thought they were way above the tax collectors have now been brought down to the same level. And they say, hey, you love people just like you. Guess what you're equal with? the lowest people on the rungs. It'd be like telling you today, hey, three days after 9-11, we should love Muslim terrorists. That'd be hard for an American to hear, wouldn't it? But that's what Jesus says. It would seem absurd to them. And Jesus says, if you love people who are like you, and never say or do anything against you. You're no better than a tax collector. You're no better than a Muslim terrorist because terrorists love each other too. You know that, right? So Jesus says, listen, the worst of people, tax collectors, who couldn't vote, whose opinion and witness in a court was not valid, who were in league with the Romans, who were considered ceremonially unclean, whose love was for sale every day to the highest bidder, the Romans... He says, yeah, you know, those people, they do as good a job about it as you do. If all you do is love those who love you. So the reality is, here's what Jesus is saying. You're not like your heavenly father. You're more like tax collectors. Imagine how that went over. But he's not done. The second if clause is found in verse 47 when he says, and if you greet only your brothers... I said in my Sunday school class, a greeting from a Jewish person always included a blessing from God and the common one was Shalom alechem. And you have to kind of spit in the, like that in there. Shalom Alechem. And it means may God give you peace. And peace was not just peace meaning no trouble. Peace was a well-rounded, everything in your life is going as it ought to because God is there. Jewish people would never say that to Gentiles. Never give that greeting to tax collectors. Never. Because they couldn't pronounce God's blessing on someone they hated. The last person in the world that Jewish people who were observant wanted to be blessed was the Romans. They wanted them to be cursed. And so it's like your boss who doesn't give you the promotion that you deserve and gives it to the relative of the friend that's employed there instead and you know it's all political and you've worked really hard for it and you're not getting it and this person who comes in late and, and all that kind of stuff gets it ahead of you so the next day at work when you find all this out you're not getting the job you come to work you walk up to your boss and you say shalom alech no you don't say that at all but I'm saying you, you, want, you don't give him a blessing you don't say God be with you May his face shine upon... You're not saying that stuff. What are you saying? You're not saying anything because you're, you're not walking over there to talk to your boss. You're ignoring him. You're not saying anything to him. Well, you are, but it's under your breath and to the other people in the room. That's normally what happens. And here's what Jesus says. If you only bless people, you only give good greetings, you only want God's best for people who are good to you, don't the Gentiles do that? Here's the point, Ready? The question of questions. And Jesus asks it in verse 47. He can't quit until he tells us this. What more are you doing than others? Do you hear what he's saying? If you are in my kingdom and you are my disciple and you say that you follow me and that God is your father and you know his love, but you act Like everybody else in this world, it's a lie, he says. It's a lie. He says, what more? In other words, the idea is you should be doing more with your love. You should be saying hi to your boss, and you should be giving him a blessing and that neighbor you can't stand, you should be making them the cookies. And tonight you should be making the phone call to get right with your sibling that you haven't talked to for years. Yes, you should. You should be writing that text. And you should be making that visit. And you should let go with that bitterness and that anger and unforgiving spirit. You should. Why? Because you're a Christian. Not because that makes you better but because you have already experienced enemy love don't you see you've already experienced it and if you have others should be experiencing it through you as well i think it's ironic and planned by god that matthew 5:20 says that there is your righteousness has to exceed the word exceed means more do you know what the word is in Matthew 5, 47? What more have you done than others? They are the same word. You know what that means? That if you really, truly, indeed, have a more righteousness, a saving righteousness, a true righteousness, both inside and out, you know what it'll mean? An exceeding righteousness will mean you have also an exceeding love because without the second, you do not have the first. That's why you prove you are sons of the Father. See, a more righteousness will produce a more love. The question is, do you have that? And would your boss who overlooks you and your father who ignored you and your spouse that you're at odds with and your kids who don't obey you and your friends who have forsaken you, would they know that? Would they have experienced it? Do they know that you, when you were an enemy, have been loved by Jesus? Would they know that because of the way that you love them? Let's close in prayer. In just a moment, we're going to close. And we're going to sing just the last verse of 444. I love to tell the story, and and for these words, for those who know it best. You are here, and most of you know this story, and you know it best. You're not unfamiliar with enemy love. But the question is, are your enemies unfamiliar with it? Or do they know it very well because you practice it? Father, fill us with Calvary love because Calvary love is enemy love. We are great at receiving it. May we be just as great in reflecting it to our enemies. And may you be glorified in it. And may they glorify you because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.